Here on Gadget Lab, we dive deep into the tech universe, tackling questions like, is giving companies access to your genetic material a good idea? And are the latest phone releases really that different than the last ones? We want to help you make informed decisions about what is worth your attention. And here's something that is undeniably worth your time, a digital subscription to Wired. Lucky for you, we are giving Gadget Lab listeners an exclusive discount, 20% off an annual subscription to Wired. Just visit Wired.com and use the promo code GL20 to get 20% off a digital subscription. Use GL20 to get exclusive access to stories on the latest innovations like AI, deepfakes, and VR, as well as today's most talked about people in technology. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Lauren. Mike. Lauren, can I interest you in trading in your iPad for an Android tablet? You'd have to make a pretty hard sell, <laughs> I think, for that one. Why? Uh, I don't know. All the apps? Uh... <laughs> Uh, the low prices? Um, the no user comments? experience? Yeah. Um, no, I, I really like my iPad. I mean, I guess I already use an Android tablet because I have a Peloton, which is a giant Android tablet. <laughs> but I admit, I don't, I don't cart that into bed with me at night when I want to watch some YouTube videos. All right. Well, you're totally missing out. Maybe we can convince you over the next 30 minutes of content. <laughs> we can give it a try. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gadget Lab. I'm Michael Calori. I'm a senior editor at Wired. And I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired. We are also joined this week by Wired Reviews editor Julian Chokatu. Julian, welcome back to the show. Hey, Julian. Hello. Thank you for having me. So we have you on this week because this is the week that we just had Samsung Galaxy Unpacked. It's Samsung's annual smartphone hype fest where the company unveils its newest phones and its newest tablets. And on Wednesday of this week, they did just that. There are three new Galaxy smartphones in the world. They're all part of the new S22 line. And there are also three new quite pricey tablets that are all part of the Galaxy Tab line. We'll talk about those tablets in the second half of the show. But in the first half of the show, let's dig into the meat of this meal, which is the phones. Now, Julian, you reported on these new devices this week, and you actually got the chance to spend a little bit of time touching them. So tell us, please, the big question, are any of the Samsung phones small enough to hold in one hand? 
Uh, yeah, they might be a bit skewed. I have very large hands, so <laughs> my experience is not the same as other people's. Uh, the S22 is uh, 6.1 inches is the screen size. And so that is actually smaller than last year's just by like 0.1 inch. So, you know, can you really tell how much smaller it is? Probably not, but it is pretty usable in one hand. I have it uh, here, I just unboxed all of them. Uh, and it is definitely the easiest one to hold. But of course, then there's the 6.6 inch Galaxy S22 Plus, and then the absolute massive 6.8 inch Galaxy S22 Ultra. And what are the standout features of these new phones, aside from being small or large? <laughs> or large, depending on which one you get. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the S21 lineup from last year, they are not really that different. Like everything is kind of like the usual, you know, it's faster, it has a slightly different camera that lets in more light, uh, all that kind of good stuff. Uh, the, the big feature here, I guess, with the Galaxy S22 Ultra is I have a hard time not calling it the Galaxy Note Ultra because <laughs> it literally is a Note phone. Uh, it has an S Pen inside it. And so that's the first time that Samsung has embedded an S Pen stylus inside the S series phones, which are its more popular line, which might pretty much mean the end of the Galaxy Note line. The last one we saw was back in 2020. And so now when you have this big screen phone with the same sort of S Pen, the same functionality, you kind of just like, why do we need a Note phone at this point, right? So um, right. so anyone who really you know loves their Note phones, you don't have to worry about it anymore. You can just uh, buy the Galaxy S22 Ultra, and that's pretty much your Note. So I have a theory, which is that when the Samsung Galaxy Note 7 started exploding, that was the one that exploded, right? It was the 7? Yeah. So I have a theory that when that happened, they set up like a five-year plan to discontinue the Note name just to separate themselves from the uh, exploding phone name and just moving it into the into the uh, the regular Galaxy S line. So I don't know if that's actually true, but that's just my theory. That's an interesting theory. I would also say that Samsung has been working on foldable devices, like phones with flexible polymer displays, for several years now. And so now it seems like those have taken the role of like the Samsung phone that is really expensive, has advanced technology in it, and they don't expect to sell that many units. So they sort of shoehorn that off to like a separate event throughout the year, whereas all of the features that have become a little bit more mainstream are now packed into the flagship phone that we hear about every February. Yeah, I mean... It, it sort of now seems that, you know, they usually have two Galaxy Unpacked events in a year. Well, sometimes three, but hopefully not. Uh, but when there's <laughs> two, uh, you know, you have one in the beginning of the year for the S series usually. And then the, the latter one in the later half, latter half of the year was the Note one. But last year that sort of changed to just being for the Galaxy Z Flip 3 and the Galaxy Z Fold 3 foldable phones. And I think that's what's just basically going to happen, you know, with with why have a whole other event for this large screen phone when you basically have that large screen phone experience earlier in the year. That stuff's just going to be for the for the foldables going forward, I think. Well, I think if there's any company that needs to streamline its product lineup, it's Samsung. So I'm actually happy that the Note is going away and that we only have to worry about an, an S Ultra now if we want to talk about the phone with the stylus. Uh, but uh, let's 
switch topics and talk about these cameras that are in this phone. Tell us what is so unique and wonderful about the cameras. So the first thing that comes to mind is obviously it's not particularly new here. It was uh, existed. It was the same feature that was available on the S21 Ultra, but it's the 10 times optical zoom camera. And you actually still can't find another phone in the United States. Uh, you can in China, uh, but not in the US <laughs> that has a 10 times optical zoom camera. And, you know, that's if you don't know what that means, it's basically the camera can zoom in 10 times. Uh, currently, you know, your iPhone, it'll show one times or you can go up to three times. And most phones stick around in that three to four times if you if you spend about $1,000 for a phone these days. Um, but Samsung, their phone can go up to 10 times. And that just means you can take super close-ups of these objects or subjects really far away. And... It's really nice, actually, to have that kind of uh, range. It just gives you a lot more options if you're trying to take more interesting photos or just, you know, you like taking photos and a lot of people do on their smartphones. So that's just sort of a nice thing that's continuing on. Um, the other big camera feature is kind of weird because it's not the default option, which if you know anything about phones, if it's not the default option, most people are probably not going to use it. So yeah. It's just, it, if it's not default, that's why, you know, a lot of companies have these smart software features where they, you know, if, instead of going to the night mode to take night photos, they kind of turn it on by default if they detect it's a low light scene. That's pretty smart. But with Samsung here, you so basically Adaptive Pixel uh, on current Samsung Galaxy S21, S21 phones, uh, for example, they have a 108 megapixel on camera on the S21 Ultra. So you can, by default, take a photo and it'll be a 12 megapixel photo because it is using a process called pixel binning, where the pixels are merging and they can absorb more light. So you're getting a lesser image resolution, but a brighter photo. So that's pretty good for most situations. Um, but you have an option to toggle on a 108 megapixel mode where you take a full 108 megapixel photo. So that means you're getting this massive file size, this super high-res photo that's often very sharp and really good for daytime, but that usually suffers at night. So the problem here is that they wanted to give people an option of being able to capture a high-resolution photo that's still pretty bright, and that's what adaptive pixel is. So now when you toggle on that high-resolution mode in the S22 Ultra's 108 megapixel mode or on the S22 and S22 Plus's 50 megapixel mode, you'll be able to take a photo in that high-resolution uh, whether it's 50 or 108, and it'll take a pixel binned image at the same time, and it'll merge the two so you can hopefully end up with a sharper, brighter photo. But I have no idea how that's really going to look. You know, I haven't really tested it yet. So it could be a marginal difference. It could be a pretty big deal. Um, but uh, because it's not the default, I have sort of some doubts that it's this huge game-changing feature because if it was that if that was the case you know that's something that they would have tried to just push hard even if it is larger file sizes right so, so yeah right. oh so you're saying like if they had actually if they actually felt like it was ready for everybody to use all the time they would have just made it the default yeah i mean yes like there's a sort of understanding that like maybe people don't want the default file size to be so high but how big are we talking is it like 30 40 megabytes it's about 20 um from when i checked during the hands-on period um basically when you take a normal photo in the normal default mode it's about three megabytes um and with this uh mode it's 20 megabytes. So that can add up. It's not necessarily a huge difference, but it is something that can definitely add up. But, you know, with 
cloud storage being very popular nowadays. It, it, it all just seems like something Samsung should have just been like, this thing's awesome here. This is the default thing. And, and there's another way if you want to take lesser photos that are, you know, smaller size, here's, here's how you do it too. Um, but maybe that's a good thing. Uh, we'll see uh, in the full review when I test these things out. Awesome. Okay, well, let's take a break. And when we come back, we will talk about the tablets. This podcast is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Each episode features insight you won't find anywhere else from the center of the conversation surrounding emerging technologies like AI. Right now on the podcast, you can hear a special episode where Brad Smith lays out Microsoft's vision for a vibrant marketplace driving the new AI economy. To hear more, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, it's Neil I. I've got some huge news. Decoder is moving to Mondays and Thursdays. We're adding a second episode of the show. On Mondays, we'll have our classic interviews with CEOs and other troublemakers. I think we're going to have to start having conversations about how do we pay those jobs that can't be done by AI. And on Thursdays, we'll be explaining big topics in the news with Verge reporters, experts, and other friends of the show. There's a new generation of people on the internet. Google search has always sucked for them. So, you know, there's no reason for them to be loyal. They can just go to TikTok. This is going to be really fun. I'm very excited about all this. So go subscribe wherever you get your podcasts now. Samsung has always taken tablets pretty seriously, probably more seriously than any other Android device maker. So it was not really a big surprise to see three new tablets at Unpacked alongside those three new phones. But these aren't cheap tablets. The lowliest one of the bunch costs $800. This could signal the beginning of a big year for Android tablets, however. Google recently called tablets the future of computing and said that it was going to focus more resources on making the Android tablet software experience more pleasant. So what do you think, Julian? Is there a bright future for Android tablets? It's kind of strange. Um, you know, there was a period where Android tablets were becoming a thing, you know, seven, eight years ago, some long time ago. <laughs> and then, you know, Google had a whole operating system at some point in time based uh, on optimizing that tablet experience. It was Android Honeycomb. It was forever ago. Um, and then nothing really happened for a long time. And then a lot of manufacturers just started not making Android tablets. And then now, all of a sudden, as of very recently, um, there's a whole new job listing for a senior engineer uh, for tablet optimization at Google. And in that description, they sort of say, uh, this is a quote from that job description, we believe that the future of computing is shifting towards more powerful and capable tablets. So... You wouldn't think that considering the entire past five, six, seven years of Google's tablet strategy. Um, they have some of the most poorly optimized tablet apps on Android compared to iPad OS. Um, so, you know, it's just one of those things where like, cool, I will wait and see how this goes. Um, and it's, it's also one of those things I don't want to just like be excited for it because 
I feel like there's so many times where I've just been like, oh, something's happening with tablets. And then a year or two later, Google's like, this isn't working. We're going to drop this whole thing just like Stadia. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah. So so I'm, I'm just trying to be cautiously optimistic. Um, but it does seem like there are a lot of changes happening because within the past year, um, there's been a ton of new Android tablets um, from various manufacturers. So Lenovo has been churning out a lot of Android tablets. Nokia just put out a uh, Android tablet that I just uh, tested and I actually really like. It's $250 and that was kind of surprising. Um, and you know, I think Samsung now covering this high-end tablet space, like, yeah, you can ask the question, why would you buy one of these things instead of like an iPad, which can probably do a whole lot more. Um, But I think Samsung has been that company that's always been present with Android tablets, and they've sort of been refining this DeX experience that they have, which sort of transitions Android into this desktop mode. And it's actually been kind of usable, you know, for the past few years, as I've been testing every year, it gets a little more refined and you can plug it to a monitor and have this desktop experience. And um, I I can see people sort of wanting to stick to their Android ecosystem instead of sort of diving into a new operating system like with Apple, especially if they already have everything on Android. So uh, I kind of get it. Um, it's It still is hard sometimes to recommend such an expensive Android tablet, but I think that's just because uh, most of us see those high prices and think, why not just get an iPad? But yeah, you know, uh, I don't know. That's what I see. <laughs> that's yeah. what I see. I mean, the base model iPad Pro is $800, which is the same price as the Galaxy Tab 8 that was just announced this week, which is the cheapest tablet that Samsung is putting out this year. I will say that they do usually have a ton of other uh, tablets. Like I just tested the Galaxy Tab S7 FE. They also have to fix their naming structure because it's really bad. Wait, say that once more. Yeah, say that three times. Galaxy Tab S7 FE, I think. Now I'm forgetting. But it was the fan edition? Yeah, the fan edition. And and it's uh, I think it's around 500 bucks. And then they also have the Tab A7. God, um, I think that's the name, uh, but that's like 200. 300 something like that so there's that a couple of different the options a designation is usually the the cheapest yeah Samsung exactly devices, yeah. so they, they have you options usually targeted at emerging markets yeah. yeah yeah the problem though is that when you take the base 330 dollars ipad which has this really good processor in there compare it with the sort of relevant priced android tablets the performance difference is insane like it's a completely smooth optimized tablet experience on i on ipad on Android, it's very jittery and not very fun to use, really. Um, so it's something that, you know, there's so many options if you are in the market for a tablet that you can get something that's super polished on the iPad side. And you can only kind of get that really polished experience if you spend so much more on the Android side. But then at that point, you're like, why not just stick with Apple? So mm. I have three comments on this. The first one is no. Okay, $800 for an Android tablet when you can get, as Julian pointed out, a really great iPad, base model iPad, for somewhere between $300 and $400. I think even less if you're a student and have amazing processing power and just a really great tablet. There's absolutely no need to spend $800 on an Android tablet. The second thing that I would say is no, also. (laughs) Did I already say that? No. Google has had so many opportunities to try to make tablets work. They are still trying to make 
tablets work. They're still trying to make fetch work. I give them a lot of credit for this. Google obviously has a lot of amazing talent in software, and software is such a key component of how a tablet works, right? How well it works and what you can do on it, that maybe there is a chance someday in the future that Google will get it right, and all of a sudden this will be like the tablet that everybody wants instead of the iPad. I just have a hard time envisioning it right now. And the third thing I would say, or rather ask you both, is have either of you ever been able to do your jobs, your full jobs, entirely on a tablet? And and what has that been like? No. Uh, actually, yes. The Chrome OS tablet. I think it was called like the Pixel Tab or something. The one that Google put out. It was like a mm-hmm. high-end tablet that just ran Chrome OS. Um, I was able to do my whole job on that just because our content management system is um, optimized for Chrome and there are all the tools that we use are available as the G Suite. So it's like if you have like a Chrome experience, like a Chromebook or a Chrome tablet, it plugs right in. So weirdly, I can't do my full job on an iPad because Mm -hmm. the content management system we use at Wired does not really work in Safari. I mean, you can kind of make it work, but there's problems. And the last thing that you want when you're trying to publish a story to the internet for like hundreds of thousands of people to read is problems. Um, and likewise with an Android tablet, it's just like it the, the web page just breaks. It barely loads. So weirdly, like the one tablet that doesn't really exist anymore is the w- only tablet that I've ever been able to do my full job on. Right. The one that is a hybrid mobile OS with a web <laughs> OS, which yeah. is something... Once again, credit to Google, yeah. they were experimenting with, and I think there's it's called Fuchsia OS was its code name, oh, right? Yeah, or was, the, was that something else? But they were, yes, they were trying to make Chrome OS a thing. And in that instance, it makes sense. I agree with you. I've never been able to do my full job on either an Android tablet or an iPad as much as I like the iPad because of our content management system and just other things that we need. Like Google Docs doesn't Mm -hmm. really run all that well on tablets, so it has gotten better. Or if someone is really deep into Excel spreadsheets, those are challenging to use on a tablet, right? Or you need like a full-fledged keyboard and mouse and all the other accessories that go with it. Um, The other thing I would say too is that in general, like this isn't specific to iPad OS or Android OS on tablets, but I'm, I'm aware from reporting on this issue that a lot of times app developers don't feel the need to optimize their apps for a tablet experience, particularly if they are developers of quote unquote pro software, stuff that people typically might pay, you know, 10 to $30 a month for or $300 a year for, because they've optimized their software for the desktop. They can sell it through the web for desktop users and therefore maximize their profits. Whereas if they develop the same application for what is still essentially a mobile OS on tablets, then they have to go through the app stores. And as a result, they end up giving Apple or Google, whoever's running the store, anywhere between you know 15 to 30% of, of their revenues from those apps. So I have just found over the years that some apps still don't work all that great on tablets. And I can't say I totally blame the developers for that, for not maximizing those experiences because or optimizing those experiences because why would they Mm -hmm. especially if you're a maker of professional grade software i mean you can't still instagram still isn't forget about (laughs) pro software instagram is still not optimized for ipad which is kind of crazy so yeah sorry i said i'm gonna go back to my third statement being no i am not spending 800 (laughs) dollars on an android tablet i know i haven't used the thing yet that is my final word so this is probably a good uh, point to mention Android 12L, which is currently in beta and it's coming out at the end of this quarter. 
Um, it's basically. A, I see that they're trying to woo me. <laughs> it's <laughs> <doing> an L. <laughs> It's basically a slightly <laughs> modified version of Android that is targeted for uh, flat uh, foldable devices and uh, you know big screen phones or big screen tablets. Um, so the whole point is, you know, they have a new sort of look to them. They can it's much easier to multitask and move those apps around into different window sizes and everything. And there's like a little dock at the bottom, kind of like an iPad, where you can sort of pull all those apps from there. Uh, and generally, it's just going to offer a more optimized experience for a lot of apps once you know developer starts adopting those Android 12 L guidelines. Uh, and so that's something that's happening, and it's kind of weird because it's kind of like that honeycomb, uh, you know, Android tablet experience that came out several years ago. Uh, and this is the first time we saw a bit of a specific look at a tablet UI almost for large screen devices. Uh, but the funny thing is, I don't think this is necessarily something that stemmed because of tablets necessarily. It seems more like they're focused on foldable devices and foldable devices are pushing Google to come up with better ways on how the interface looks like on some of those larger screens, which might then you know benefit those larger screen tablets. So it's kind of a weird, backhanded way of helping tablets grow and, and get better. But um, I, I just got a tablet recently that has the Android 12 L experience on it. I haven't tried it yet, but from what I've seen, it actually looks much better than the current state of Android on a tablet. Um, so, you know, again, more of that cautious optimism of uh, hopefully this will be you know, everywhere and it'll look nice and it'll actually be easier to use your Android tablet. And then maybe I'll spend $800 on an Android tablet. <laughs> probably I would love to stuff. see it. I would really love to see this be a success because, you know, it would be nice, first of all, to have like real Android apps for tablets. And it's sort of a chicken and egg problem. But if we can get a really good on-screen user experience, then maybe people will be more apt to actually build for that experience. And also, it would just be nice to have an option other than the iPad. Now, I love my iPad. It's the only iOS device that I own. I guess it's actually technically an iPad OS device, but I can use it to like unlock my Apple TV or something if I have to restart my Apple TV, you know? Um, I love it. It's a great computer, but it would be nice to also have something that works a lot more like my phone which is an Android phone. So I can see, I can see the bridge being there and it's just like, I'm not quite ready to cross it. But one more thing we should mention is that um, I think if people pre-order the Samsung tablet, they get a keyboard case with it. Is that right? Yeah. And this is another thing that I hate about a lot of the tablets that often come out, you know, they're like, oh, it's your new computer, uh, but you had to pay $250 for the keyboard. <laughs> and it's yeah. like, wait, so <laughs> to really get the full potential, I need to spend an additional $250 or $150 or whatever it is. Um, so yeah, for the Tab S8 family, they have different types of keyboards that come with it. Um, I, I'm not entirely sure on what the keyboards cost themselves. I think they're somewhere within the $100 to $250 range. But if you do pre-order them, um, you get them bundled for free, uh, which honestly should be the default. And, and to Samsung's credit, they do bundle the S Pen in with the tablet, which is about the only manufacturer, I think, that keeps doing that. Um, whereas, you know, with the iPad, you have to buy the Apple Pencil, which might be better, sure, but at least you get a stylus with these with this tablet. Um, but yeah, if you're if you're thinking about these tablets, this is definitely the best time to buy them because you should not spend a whole separate $250 on a Bluetooth keyboard. Well, I'm certainly thinking about the tablets, that's for sure. 
maybe not in the way that they want me to. That's okay. All right, let's take another break. And then when we come back, we'll do our recommendations. No. (laughs) (laughs) Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? Come on, of course you do. Introducing The Jordan Harbinger Show. The Jordan Harbinger Show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening, even inside your own brain. Jordan dives into the minds of fascinating people, from athletes, authors, and scientists, to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I, N as in Nancy, G-E-R, in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. All right, Julian, you are our guest, so you get to go first. What's your recommendation? My recommendation is not something most people will probably ever use or want or care about. That's like all of my recommendations. What are you talking about? (laughs) Every single week I come on here and I drop some stuff that four people care about. So I'm sure yours is going to be awesome. Okay. Well, so uh, usually when I'm going to go go do a video, uh, I have to use my teleprompter, my tripod. I have a slider that slides the camera back and forth for this cool video effect. And I have a couple other things that I basically am constantly putting my camera on multiple little stands and gadgets and little things. It gets very annoying because I have to constantly unscrew the camera, screw it back onto this thing, screw it back onto the other thing, do that over multiple, multiple times. So Manfrotto came out with this little uh, quick release system. It's called a Manfrotto Move. It's about a hundred bucks, but basically you insert that little system into all of your little things that you might put your camera on. And now it becomes a very two second quick process of just doing a little release on the handle and your camera just pops out. So now I basically can move between all of these little things by just in a quick hand motion, it takes two seconds and it just has been very, very nice this past week when I've been filming like three videos and I don't need to just spend like five minutes finding a way to screw something onto the tripod or something like that. So it's just very nice. Uh, you do need to buy multiple of them to really get a use out of them, obviously. So it's not like just $100 that you're going to spend, probably a couple of them. Um, but it is, if, if you're someone like me who's moving around and making a lot of videos on the go, it is definitely a lifesaver. For the benefit of our listeners, I'll point out that Lauren was nodding in acknowledgement while you were talking about the the pain of moving all of your equipment around during a video shoot. <laughs> I was saying yes to the Manfrotto. <laughs> I would also say my recommendation this week is to watch Julian's videos because Julian has produced a few videos, including one on these new Samsung Galaxy S22 7E FPQR <laughs> phones. And um, and so if you want to see what they look like, I'd say go watch his videos. My actual recommendation this week is Euphoria. Oh, the show? The show. Or the feeling? Uh, both. <laughs> the show is on HBO Max. It stars Zendaya, Hunter Schaefer. Um, let's see. Who is uh, Eric Dane? Isn't it? I mean, it's a great cast. Sid- Sydney. Sydney Sweeney. Sydney Sweeney. Yeah. It's um, uh, Maude Apatow. There are others I'm I'm forgetting, but it's it's a really fantastic cast and an incredibly disturbing show 
um, about teenagers in suburbia, and they should call it Disturbia. It's really uh, disturbing. And Zendaya is the main character and also the narrator of each episode. And she suffers from drug addiction. And um, it's just, it's incredibly, it's compelling. Don't watch it with your kids around. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm deep into second season. Second already. season just came out, right? Just came out and it comes out every Sunday. So that, that's a thing that HBO has done. I, I don't know if I'd call it like a good thing because I don't know if it's good, but HBO has successfully driven me back into the the habit of like gotta wait for the next episode each week as opposed to just binge watching all at once. Of course, you can do that. You can wait until all of the episodes are out and then just binge watch. That is absolutely what I do. But yeah, and now I'm you know for the past few shows I've watched on HBO Max, I'm just like waiting every week for the new episode to come out. Yeah, um, and that's how I feel about Euphoria right now. I so. think the only shows that I don't watch them all at once are the ones where there's no continuity from episode to episode. So something like How To with John Wilson Mm -hmm. or Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, the Johns. (laughs) Um, I'll watch those like when they're new because they're fun to watch, you know, one at a time. But yeah, it just drives me nuts when I have to wait. I have to wait how many days? Yeah. Six? Seven? Come on. It's ridiculous. It's 2022. Put it all out at the same time. Here, here. (laughs) You know, they could bundle with an $800 Android tablet. They could, they could bundle like early downloads. Like maybe then I would buy it. They were like, you get access to all of your favorite series all at once if you just spent $800 on this Android tablet. We've struck deals with all of the major media streaming apps. I'd be like, all right, all right. Now we're talking. All right, Mike, what is your recommendation this week? Uh, true to my brand. I'm going to recommend something that maybe four people will care about, but uh, it is the Caetano Veloso profile in The New Yorker. Uh, Gesundheit. Thank you. Um, This is uh, the current issue of The New Yorker, which is the anniversary issue. It's the issue they put out every year that has the Eustace portrait on the cover. Uh, Their their mascot, the mascot of the magazine, our sister publication, um, fellow Condé Nast title, The New Yorker. Anyway, uh, they have profiled uh, Caetano Veloso, who is a giant of Brazilian music. He is a singer and a songwriter and a performer. He's been around for over 50 years. Uh, He is 79 years old and he is a superstar in Brazil. And he's a very political figure. He's a very divisive figure. A lot of people call him um, the Bob Dylan of Brazil. I like to think that he's more of like the John Lennon of Brazil because he has a beautiful singing voice. No shade at all to Bob Dylan. I'm just saying Caetano Veloso has a better singing voice than Bob Dylan. But uh, lyrical content, political activity, political content is all like operating at a very high level from the very beginning of his career. And it has shaped his career in a very interesting way, which is what this profile is about. It's about how the political situation in Brazil and the way that he was treated by all the different regimes and the dictatorships in the 70s uh, have shaped his career and have sort of put him into this arc of history that he otherwise would not have fallen into if he was from another part of the world or if he didn't participate in politics. So uh, it's really interesting, really interesting profile. And I would encourage you to read it. And I would encourage you to listen to Caetano Veloso's music because he still at 79 has one of the most beautiful singing voices on the planet. Can I just read aloud a little excerpt from this profile? Please do, but only enough so that we don't get sued by The New Yorker. Okay. All right. David Rebnick, please don't sue us. (laughs) 
The Sambistas eased into some old standards with shuffling rhythms and choruses sung in shaggy unison. Mosquito, a trim singer in a t-shirt and sneakers, took a matchbook out of his pocket to add some sandy-sounding percussion. Linda, Linda, Veloso purred from his seat. Paula Levine, his wife and manager, sat next to him, rolling a joint. She describes the state of awe and ecstasy that her husband inspires as the Kitano effect. People talk fitfully in his presence. They rush to mention their favorite of his albums, or they quote from songs that have become de facto Brazilian national anthems. It just sounds melodic. Yeah. It's, 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 it's great New Yorker writing. That's Jonathan Blitzer writing for The New Yorker? Correct. Lovely stuff. Julian, I know you're excited to go listen to some Caetano, so we won't keep you any longer. But I, thank you for I joining will. us. I will go listen to some, uh, but thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. And thank you, Lauren, for that lovely recitation. You're so welcome. Anytime you want me to do, you know, any kind of reading aloud, um, <laughs> I can do the the entire Wired podcast just reading aloud our stories. <laughs> the entrepreneurs stood on stage touting Web3 as a solution to all the world's problems. <laughs> Tell me more. Uh, Yeah, we could sell that as an NFT. Uh, If you, our listeners, have any feedback, you can find all of us on Twitter. Just check the show notes. This show is produced by Boone Ashworth, and we will be back next week. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Thank you.